From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation that honestly I've wanted to have on the podcast for some time. It's one that I've actually started and stopped a handful of times now. We've talked a lot on Radio Advisory about the future of healthcare, but today we're going to be talking specifically about the future of value-based care. If you've tracked what literally anyone else has said on the topic, you know there are some wildly different ideas out there. So to make sense of it all, I've brought back health system strategist Ben Umansky and added a new voice, health plan expert Natalie Treves. Hey, Ben. Hey, Natalie. Good to be back. Hello. Ben, last time we spoke, you were on some glorious lake, kind of living your best quarantine life. Are you still there? <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm in my basement living my normal quarantine life. <laughs> so it goes. How about you, Natalie? Where are you calling in from? I am in, well, I hate to admit, but I often work in my bedroom. So I mostly just sort of try to rotate the desk around so that people think I have a bigger house than I do. <laughs> so I am right there. I'm going to say that's a advisory board best practice for virtual meetings. <laughs> Move your desk around to make your space look bigger than it is. Let's just go ahead and dive in because we have a lot to actually cover. And before we get into the details, let's just take a moment and define some terms People talk about population health and value-based care and risk-based payments, but those actually all mean different things. So Ben, I want to start with you. At a high level, how do you actually differentiate between those terms? Yeah, so I, I, I guess I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I hesitate on that is I actually gave up a long time ago any hope of reaching an official canonical definition of these things. They do mean different things. They mean different things to different people. Uh, when I use the term population health and when I hear it, I usually think we're talking about the actual delivery of care or, or something related to it, the social determinants, but the, the, the actions that providers would take to improve health and thereby improve cost. If we're talking about value-based care, that's a big umbrella that, in my experience, can mean almost anything. And I actually don't use the phrase for that reason, but I know a lot of people do. Hmm. When I talk about risk or provider-born risk, uh, risk shifting to hospitals or physicians, what I'm looking for there is some financial arrangement where there is a clear, unambiguous incentive to do less. And very few models actually reach that bar in my book. But the term is used more capaciously in, in, from, by other people, and, uh, and I'm okay with that. It's just important to always ask, as you've done at the beginning of the question, how are you using the terms? How about you, Natalie? Do you agree that maybe risk, provider-borne risk, is maybe the more appropriate term for us to be using in this conversation? Yes, although I think the word risk itself is confusing, too, because when we think about how many things we apply that to in healthcare, like high-risk patient does not mean mm. the same thing as risk contract, right? And so it is such a minefield of terms that we're talking about here. I like to think of you know, once you get past this blanket term of value, which sounds very nice, what are we actually talking about mechanically? And I think people forget that value-based care is about trying to prove that a specific outcome is the specific result of a specific action by a specific actor. 
And I know that's a lot, but that is all what we are trying to prove. And so that's why we get into all these conversations about documentation and metrics and all of those different pieces. And it gets really messy really fast. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, we're talking about a spectrum of models here. So maybe for this conversation, I'm going to try to use the term risk uh, as much as possible to at least get a little bit more specificity to, to what we're talking about. But to your point, we know that we are you know, decades into innovating around all sorts of different alternative payment models. I want to get sort of your honest take decades into some kind of risk sharing, how far have we actually gotten and how far do we realistically have to go? <laughs> have we gotten far? It's a little bit of a scary question. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I buy the premise that that it's a A to B destination. How far are you on? The, I mean, I, I think it's a question of what is the the financing model for healthcare that best suits the needs of all the parties involved? And the pendulum has swung back and forth as to whether that should be risk-based, whether that's more fee-for-service. It's fashionable to say we're trying to move away from fee-for-service, but there are a lot of people whose bread is still buttered on that side. I guess I'm not sure that there's this inevitable migration that we need to keep score against. We like to laud ourselves as an industry for you know what percent of payments we have flowing through value. That's usually the term that organizations use. And when you start to unpack that, we are talking about small percentages of a small you know, segment of a population that is attributed to one specific provider. And so, yes, in theory, I think all of those dollars sort of touched value, but were those specific dollars actually at risk and actually in jeopardy of flowing a different direction depending on performance? Maybe not so much. And so that's really hard to measure, but I think we are not as far along that process as we'd like to be. But I do think the success that we're seeing is more and more executives are talking about this seriously, not as a vague idea, but as something they need to figure out what their strategy is, not whether they should have a strategy or not. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think there is there is a sense in many corners, at least that I speak to, of some inevitability. Now whether or not we believe that is separate question. But if you if you do if you think the world is going in this direction and you need to prepare for it, it becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy or at least a self-motivating one. You see the efforts that people have put into population health. So again, I'm on the more clinical side, expecting that, you know, whether it was the ACA or anything else was going to push them in that direction. I think that's progress just in terms of the care model, but whether or not the financials are ever going to line up in a sustainable fashion, I don't think uh, the industry's cracked that nut yet. No. To your point, Ben, I don't want to discount that innovation has happened, that change has happened in our industry. But to the extent that we've actually fundamentally changed payment models to a significant amount, I just don't think that we're there. And it sounds like you agree with that. I I agree that fee-for-service is not on its last legs nor even limping. Yeah, I had an executive tell me the other day, I'm not going to share the organization that that he's from, uh, but it was pretty telling. He said something along the lines of the extent to which value-based care exists in my market is purely in the imagination of the hospital executives. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it completely stuck with me as, you know, this is this is something that maybe to your point, Natalie, we we like to think of ourselves as making progress on, but let's actually look at the dollars. And that brings me to my next question. If we've been 
trying some kind of different risk-based models, different alternative payment models, different strategies on the path to quote-unquote value for some time, why hasn't it stuck yet? Providers are looking for deals where they will make more money. And they may not say that quite out loud, but they are. Uh, Or at least for ones where they're not making substantially less. The whole point of these models, from a payer's perspective, is to pay less money. And it's actually pretty difficult to make those numbers work out. We can talk about where there are some win-wins. Maybe we can get into that. But just fundamentally, something that works well for the person paying is probably not going to work as well for the person receiving, even if there's some uh, adjustment on the individual case-by-case basis. The overall flow of funds is either more or it's not. Natalie, what are you hearing from the plans? Well, I was going to say, I think it's it's refreshing to hear Ben say those things because I did some research a few years ago that still feels fresh to me where we were talking to both provider executives and health plan executives about their attitudes on risk and what it would take to move forward. And they would kind of point fingers a little bit. So there was, mm. from the plan perspective, they would say, you know, providers just want risk that is predictable and that is going to make them more money. And also, just as an aside, predictable risk is not a thing. So that is complicated <laughs> right there. Right. And predictable then, risk isn't really that all that risky. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to phrase it. And then the providers would say, well, the plans just, they want us to charge less. That's fundamentally what this is, is a price cut. And they're just disguising it as this fancy word, value-based care. And so- That is exactly the tension and exactly why this is really hard to move forward. What I think is also interesting is that at the same time that plans are complaining about providers, you know, wanting to make sure that they stay whole, wanting to make sure that their revenues are stable as they go into a risky model, they are also saying, we really want to work with you. We really want to collaborate with you. And that is true. But it's wild to me that they're saying those same things at the same time. It would be like if I were to say, hey, Ray and Ben, you know, you guys seem to never want to work with me on this podcast, but it'd be great if we worked together on this podcast, right? Hmm. It's a it's a weird thing to to say at the same time. Everything we've talked about so far was true prior to the pandemic. So let's talk about how COVID is changing the calculus on the path towards risk. I think some in the industry are saying, gosh, that's going to be a lot harder right now, while others are saying, risk-based payments are a lot more appealing. So let's start with the hard stuff. How are things more complex now than they would have been in January? Mechanics on this are really, really hard. And the ways that we are assessing quality and assessing you know, how sick the population is and what we project the cost benchmark is going to be, that's all based on historical data, one, or actions that a lot of clinicians and public health regulators would say are a little bit extraneous in the middle of an emergency. So I'm not sending reports to physicians on care gap closures when they're trying to figure out how to keep people basically safe. Mm -hmm. This is all going to catch up with us later. So we're either making adjustments to quality standards. We are having to work with 2018, 2017 data because there's always these lags in how we collect data. Um, Potentially in 2023, we will be living in a 2018 data world. So that's like a five-year lag that we need to be thinking about, um, that everyone's going to try to design these models around. But everything that Natalie just said is probably just the tip of the iceberg of what actually has to get done to reach a deal that is 
workable for both sides, where we agree on the terms, we say this is the price for this population, here's how we attribute people, here's what we're going to track, and we both think it's a good deal. Mm-hmm. And, and getting to that point is extraordinarily hard in normal times. Throw on top of it all the uncertainty, everything that, that throws the world into, into chaos these days, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to find risk deals that will be good ones. Doesn't mean they won't do it. I'm very fearful that they might still take the plunge. But in a year or two or three, when those contracts come up for renegotiation, I think you may see a lot of regret. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Looking for more ways to connect with Ray and our other experts? To stay up to date on the biggest news and issues in healthcare today, follow Advisory Board on social media. There, you'll find resources for your team, our experts' latest blog posts, and information about upcoming special events. On Twitter, we're at AdvisoryBD. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn, too. Just search for Advisory Board. The challenges that you're talking about are not insignificant, right? The challenges from the mechanical side when it comes to documentation, when it comes to just figuring out what is the right price, right, are massive barriers that aren't going to go away, you know, in the new year. But there's a lot of folks saying that, hey, different parts of the value-based care spectrum are looking really, really appealing to, to my organization right now. Tell me about the ways that folks are calling for COVID to create this acceleration in risk. Well, for one thing, plans, fundamentally, their job is to provide access to a network of providers that is reasonably affordable. They can't have their provider network collapse. And so there was a real, real risk of a lot of providers going out of business Mm -hmm. And then secondary risk is they actually have targets that they need to meet spending-wise in terms of how much premium revenue they're using. It's called the MLR. So the plans are sitting on a lot of unspent cash that's meant to go to medical services. And so they are looking at this field and saying, I've got providers who are vulnerable. I need to spend a good amount of this money on medical services. I'm willing to make concessions I wouldn't normally make on risk contracts to make that a plausible way for providers to hopefully survive here. And so it's not something they can do for everyone, but I think we're seeing a lot more goodwill from plans on trying to be flexible. Massachusetts adapted their their very famous and successful AQC model for smaller practices. And so they're giving upfront payments to those practices in a way that is you know, much more substantial than in the past. So those practices can jump into risk without as much risk in the beginning, right? So they've got a little support to build that infrastructure. I'm hearing from plans that they've signed up more providers for risk contracts in the last six months than they have in the last six years. So it wow. is- downside risk contracts? That is a good question. I think so. Hmm. Which, I mean, again, that comes back to, we didn't have a lot of downside risk to begin with. So sure. you know, maybe it's 1% instead of 0.1%, but still. It's interesting to hear that they're maybe seeing this as an opportunity. Ben, what are you hearing from the providers when it comes to this idea that we could, you know, jump headfirst into the risk game? 
Well, uh, two things. One, I think it's important that we distinguish between enthusiasm for the concept of risk Mm -hmm. and actual willingness and ability to get to a risk-based contract that truly works for both sides. Clearly, this has been a bad year to be in fee-for-service. No question about it. And so the idea of doing something different, of getting into risk, bearing, you know, whether it's capitation or, or anything else on that end of the spectrum, is conceptually appealing. But when you get into the details of it to say, what is the exact price we're agreeing on? Who's attributing? What are we tracking from a quality perspective? How is this going to rebase over the years? All of those become negotiation points, and a lot of them are kind of zero sum. So it becomes very difficult to reach a win-win there. Now, I will say, and if you were listening carefully to what Natalie was talking about, you were hearing a lot of examples of physicians. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important distinction, that if the risk is being given to particularly upstream physicians, so primary care, um, certain specialists who are who are influencing the downstream but aren't the ones collecting the downstream revenue, then it's a much easier prospect to get to the win-win. You can actually make the dollars go around the block. It's when you start asking an entire health system who's, who does the services that are going to be disrupted if we're managing the population correctly. That's where uh, it gets difficult to square it. The one other thing that I would add in that vein that I think is true for both physicians and larger health systems is that they are looking to, you know, risk by its nature is a closer relationship between a plan and a provider. And we've seen plans more willing to throw support at providers in those kinds of contracts, whether they're systems or practices. And so we saw plans, you know, helping with PPE investment, helping set up telehealth infrastructure Mm -hmm. where that didn't already exist. And so I think those outside of those contracts are looking a little bit enviously at the kind of support that can come in if you are a little bit more closely entwined with a partner. So the question that I'm hearing from leaders in the industry right now is very focused on how will COVID change the path to risk, the path to value-based care? Will it speed it up? Will it slow it down? I want to hear from you. Do you think that's actually the right question to be asking right now? Well, if, if you're in the mindset that I will do this when I have to, but not before, then I think it's a relevant question of whether this is something that's going to happen to you. Hmm. I get nervous when people ask what's going to happen to me. I'd like to see people asking, what am I going to happen to, right? What, what am I going to affect in the world? And, you know, to that end, I think there is, uh, there is a question of, can we in any time COVID or otherwise find arrangements that are sustainable, that we're not going to regret three years down the road. So I'd like to see people, and in my conversations with executives, this is what I encourage them to do, you know, really look towards the future and say, where, where do you want to get? What ca- outcomes do you need? Do you need su- uh, significant steerage or shifting in market share to ever get in a deal like this? Well, then make sure that there's something in the contract that makes you think you're going to get that. You know, do, do you need it to be a certain level of, of sharing? Do you need certain upside or downside? Make sure that's in the contract. Don't just say, well, is risk coming? It's too abstract a question. You, you go through a lot of meetings accomplishing nothing if that's the level you're talking at. So it sounds like it's perhaps not the right question. And maybe a better way to put it is what are the smart things that providers and plans should be considering right now in a moment that the conversation around risk has certainly been reinvigorated? 
you're both joining from each of those perspectives, from the health plan and the provider. Is there actually a way to make risk a win for both sides there? I think there are several. I, I think it is, I'll never say it's easy. I, I think it's entirely feasible that uh, an arrangement between a payer and a physician group that is not affecting its own demand can reach an agreement uh, that is uh, mutually beneficial financially for both sides in the long run. I think that can work. If we're talking about hospitals and health systems and downstream expensive acute care, I, I think the only way to make it really stick is if there is a shift of the market toward that provider. So you can imagine that a system might say, I will bear the risk for this population and I will take a, a price cut relative to the expected spend to do that, which is, so there's the win for the payer. But in exchange, I want you to steer me more of those lives, more of those volumes. It, it's, a, it's a price for volume play, which has been in healthcare since the beginning of time. We're now doing it on a population level. And if that steerage occurs, then that can be something that wins for the payer because they get their price cut. It wins for the provider because they get some market share, which outweighs the price cut, plus whatever shared savings, which is, is probably not where the, the, uh, the gains are really going to come from. Um, but notice that can't work for an entire market or an entire industry. Because that market shift is zero sum. You know, building on the the market shifts that you're talking about, I think that market context is really important for us all to think about how plans look at that when they are evaluating these deals, right? Because again, you know, we talked about this before, plans would like to have a focused, highly value-oriented deal with one system, but they also still have to have this broader network to appease employers right now. That's sort of the world that we exist in. I think that is the challenge on the win-win side that all parties need to be cognizant of. How are they fitting into this broader strategy for the health plan? And how are they really making sure that they are going to help the health plan, especially in the employer space, make those employer clients happy with that arrangement? And I think that is one of the most important things to be focused on if you are going to go into one of these joint, Hmm. um, highly intertwined risk models. The The bigger picture I'd say that plans need to be thinking about in trying to cultivate this win-win-ish environment for the the bigger group of providers is, are they laying out a coherent framework for transitioning into value? I think a lot of providers really just need the stability to know what is coming next, what do my payments look like next year, what do they look like in five years? Um, And I think right now, All the payers are trying to throw out deals that work for them presently, but they don't necessarily lay out this clear vision for the future and how they'll get there. And so it's hard for providers to be asked to make the investments we need them to make in underlying cost infrastructure to do that. And so North Carolina, I think, does that very well with what they've all announced on Blue Premier for the last several years. You know, they are laying out, here's what's going to happen in this model for the next five years. And they're sort of taking a CMS approach to it. But it's very obvious to all the participants what will happen. And so they can plan for the future, which I don't think always happens in these kinds of conversations. All of us have sort of taken what I think is a little bit of a skeptical (laughs) approach throughout this conversation. So let me just force you to be an optimist for a moment. What actually gives you hope about the future of value-based care and of provider-borne risk? What gives me hope is seeing how many providers 
faced with the prospect of having to bear risk, whether they're going to or not, whether it's ever going to work financially, faced with the prospect, have made changes that improve the care of their patients, of their communities. You know, you look back at something as simple as the readmissions penalties that were put in in the ACA. Very little tiny thing, nothing close to capitation. As soon as that happened, as soon as people had to pay attention, we saw efforts getting put in place. We saw readmission rates drop. We saw care improve. You saw that for hospital-acquired conditions. You, you see this in the efforts that providers put towards their primary care networks, the management of chronic disease, patient engagement efforts, digital health, lower-cost access points like retail clinics and urgent care. All of that gets a push from the prospect of being financially responsible. So even if we never get to the end of the rainbow, and even if it's not a goal worth we're pushing toward, um, I think we're going to reap some benefits along the way simply from actually caring about what we do to people and what it costs. I think actually the skepticism gives me hope. We have you know experts in the industry and providers and plans now recognizing the relationship between incentives and behaviors in a way that I think they weren't before. And so we now are asking the question, you know, telehealth is a great example. We are asking the question of, do we have a payment model that enables telehealth to happen, which is something that everyone else in the world and all other industries, you know, any kind of virtual version of their services is a given and not necessarily in healthcare. We are asking the question of what are the constraints that we have and what can we actually adapt and change and what needs to shift and what is holding us back. And I think that's not a way we were thinking about this a few years ago. The other thing that gives me hope is that we're actually talking about disparities in value-based care models now. And I think, you know, certainly reinvigorated with everything um, going on across the nation right now in the wake of the George Floyd protests, you know, we're talking about social risk adjustment, whether we should be thinking proactively about the outcomes we are trying to achieve and, and how we are judging the risk of a population. We are thinking about, do these models alienate providers who are maybe more representative of certain populations? And we know that research shows you know, patients fare better when their providers look like them. And so how are we adapting to bring everyone with us to the value-based care, quote unquote, future? This is clearly a huge debate happening in our industry right now. It's a complex question with a complex set of answers. So I want to give each of you a moment to sort of speak directly to our listeners and offer them some actionable advice. Natalie, I'm going to start with you. What do you want executives, be them providers or payers, to focus on right now? Focus on the behaviors that you're actually trying to train and those that are going to apply to as many situations as possible. So we've been talking about that higher end of the spectrum of more downside risk, but a lot of the things that we as an industry need providers to do are things that are incentivized by pay-for-performance models, documentation, identifying high-risk patients, sharing data between different entities. All of those are competencies that are going to serve everyone that we need to be supporting. And so it's more about how do we deploy resources in a friendly way to support that buildup rather than coming at it from the hard incentive first and let the providers figure out how to do that on their own. I very much advocate the what do you want to see and then help make that change. Ben, how about you? Sweat the small stuff. 
we've been in buzzword land for decades now on this. And the number of stories I hear, I mean, I got an email this last week from a, a physician group that said, we got into this ACO model with this private payer. And it turns out that the way everything is arranged, we can't ever make any money. And so now we're, we need to know what to do next. And this was foreseeable, right? Like, look at the details before you get in. Make sure you understand what's really happening and don't waste your time with stuff that's never going to work. Focus on the things that might be as smart as the other guy on the other side of the table. I love that. Ben, Natalie, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm not sure that questions around how COVID will catalyze the industry towards risk are actually the right questions to be asking. Frankly, COVID was never going to force the industry to do anything, at least not in the long term. It's actually up to you, the plans and the providers, to make meaningful change towards true provider-borne risk. And to do that, remember, we are here to help. any semblance of a healthy diet was going out the window. So I drove myself to McDonald's, got two sausage egg McMuffins, <laughs> uh, an orange juice, and a coffee, um, and <laughs> inhaled them. And I, that four minutes of pleasure is going to be, you know, it's going to come back to me, but, but that four minutes was great. <laughs>